We continue our sermon series in 1 Peter. We'll be in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in, or, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Dr. Levi Harrison, he's an orthopedic surgeon. He had a young woman come into his office, and she was complaining of wrist pain. So he began to ask her questions, interview her, and ask what was going on, if he could figure out where this wrist pain was coming from. And he found out that she worked in social media production. As he asked her more questions, he said, well, what's that mean? What do you do? And, he, and she said, well, I help people take selfies that can really promote their life and put their business or their interests out there. And so I myself have really learned the art of selfies. So I take a lot of selfies. And the doctor went, hmm, I think I've figured out your pain. So he, you know, looked at her wrist and basically diagnosed her with some form of carpal tunnel that was due to taking so many selfies. And he said every time that the wrist is hyperflexed inward quickly to catch that magical, perfect selfie moment, over and over, that inflames the nerve and the nerve gets angry and, and you have pain. So this woman got the diagnosis and then was quoted in this article saying, that's just the generation we live in. We live in the selfie generation. C.S. Lewis was asked after one of his lectures, he was asked which uh, religion produces the most happiness in its followers. And C.S. Lewis said this, while it lasts, the religion of worshiping oneself is best. That it can bring some instant happiness of worshiping self. So you have, you know, the selfie generation that we live in. You've got uh, the statistics of plastic surgeons who have uh, had a rise in recent years of plastic surgeries 
And a lot of these new people coming in walk in with an iPhone and a selfie and point to it and say, I want that part of me fixed. We live in this very self-centered world. And we're quick to point that out, right? We, we can, in fact, most of us would say, I can tell you out there who is selfish. We look at those behaviors, they're obvious, but there's a more subtle form of self-centeredness. Much of the spirituality of our day, much of the religiosity of our day is a shiny veneer for another form of self-fulfillment. The gospel of Jesus Christ produces something very different. What kind of life does the gospel of Jesus Christ produce? To answer that, we're gonna look at the problem of sin, we're gonna look at the transformation or the change of desire, and we're gonna look at the expression of new desires. So let's start with the problem of sin. Look at verse three. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Now, if you were to ask the average person what sin is, you'd probably get some version of that list. Right, the first five words or the first five phrases in verse three describe an unrestrained desire for sex, food, and drink. And that last word or phrase, lawless idolatry, that describes the religious activity that people in the first century, especially in this Greek and Roman culture, would engage in to please the gods. In the first century, there was, in that world, there were, there were a ton of gods, and, and each god had a, a different area of responsibility in the world. And so when there was peace in the city, or when someone had a successful agricultural crop, or when there was freedom from earthquake or floods, people would attribute that to the blessing of the gods. And to get that blessing, they would actually engage in these activities listed in verse three, sex, food, and drink, those would be part of the rituals that they would engage in to get these gods to give them what they wanted, to get these gods to fulfill their desires and their passions. Peter, in verse two, sets up this contract of living for human passions, which understand, living for human desires, that can take on a very irreligious form. Sex, food, and drink. It can also take on a very religious form. But what we see there are desires, the human desires and the will of God, or that word for will means desires, desires of God. Peter is defining sin here not at first and foremost at the behavioral level. He's, de he's defining sin at the desire level, deep in the human heart. And of course, out of desires come the behaviors. But first and foremost, sin is, is at the desire level. Now, you may read verse three and say, I'm good. I'm good. I maybe used to do that. In the past, I used to do that, but I'm good now. I've gotten past that. 
I'm going to church now. I'm living right. Behavioral change doesn't necessarily mean that there's been a change at the desire level. Elizabeth Elliot tells this fictitious parable of Jesus and his disciples. She says, Jesus was standing there one day with his disciples and he was ready to go on a journey. And so he told all his disciples, I want you to pick up a stone and carry it for me. And so Peter asked Jesus why. Jesus, why, why are we carrying a stone for you? And Jesus said, Peter, just pick up a stone and carry it for me. So Peter says, okay. Didn't give me any specification, any size. So Peter finds this tiny little pebble and he sticks it in his pocket. And Jesus says, all right, follow me. So they go on their journey. Gets to be lunchtime. Jesus calls his disciples off to the side of the path. He says, pull out your stone. Then he waves his hand in the air and the stone turns to bread. And he says, there's your lunch. But Peter takes his little morsel of bread and takes his appetizer and goes, ah, now I get it. Why didn't Jesus tell me? So they finish their lunch and Jesus says, I want you to pick up a stone and carry it for me. We're gonna keep going. Peter goes, aha, now, now I get it. So he picks up this massive boulder and he hoists it on his shoulder. He starts walking down the path. He's gasping for air. He's struggling, but all he can think about is dinner. Gets to be dinner time, and Jesus pulls his disciples over to the riverbank, and he says, man, I want you to take your stone. I want you to throw it in the river. So they all take their stones and throw it in the river. Peter takes his boulder, and he shot puts it in the river. And he says, okay, let's keep going. And Peter stands there staring at Jesus, dumbstruck. And Jesus says, Peter, who were you carrying that stone for? Sin is addiction to self. Sin is believing that everything in the world in your orbit exists to please your desires, to fulfill your desires. That's what sin is. When Jesus came to the earth to die and to raise from the dead, he did not come primarily to fix your behavior. He came to fix your wanter. He came to change your desires to transform your desires. But how? How does he do that? What does the transformation of desire look like? Look at verse one. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Again, Peter reinforces the problem of sin here. Sin is not primarily what you do. Sin is what or who you live for. 
And what or who you live for will determine what you do. Jesus came to change our desires, to change who we live for. To change our desires from living for self to living for him. Now, how's that happen? Well, Christ suffered in the flesh. That means uh, that, that that's referring to Christ's one-time sacrifice on the cross. And then whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, the word suffered, Christ suffered in the flesh, and the, and the word has suffered, whoever has suffered. Both of those are in a form, a verb form, that describes a definitive past event. They're not describing an ongoing process. So what that means is that your definitive suffering in the flesh is your sharing in the death of Christ on your behalf. In other words, what this is saying is that when Christ died, you died with him if you have trusted Christ. That's the suffering in the flesh that's spoken about there. And that when you die with Christ and you share in his death on the cross, a change happens. And Peter defines it as ceasing to sin. Now, what does that mean? What does ceasing to sin mean? Well, that cease to sin is a form that describes a present condition. A present ongoing condition this determined by a past event. So the death of Christ, which you share in as a past event, has changed you so that your present condition is ceasing from sin. Notice how Peter defines ceasing to sin in verse two. Right? He defines that ceasing to sin at a desire level. He doesn't define it at the behavioral level. He says at the desire level, you no longer live for human passions. You no longer live for self. You live for the will of God. That word will is desire. You live for the desire of God. What God desires, you desire. What God loves, you love. Right? The desires have been changed. They've been transformed. We have a penta plant that is growing in a large pot on our back patio. And this little penta plant that started off very small has grown to be quite big. And it pushes out these beautiful pink flowers. Well, about a month ago, we noticed that there was a little plant coming out of the soil in this pot next to the penta plant. And I immediately thought, oh, we're just gonna get another penta. You know, another penta, some seed dropped, and it'll be another penta plant. Well, a couple weeks later, it was apparent that what was growing in there was not a penta. It was a sunflower. And this sunflower, three weeks later, was about two feet tall, and just recently, it, it put out this beautiful you know, yellow sunflower, about three or four of them on the stalk. Looks rather odd, penta plant, sunflower. What happened is we put a bird feeder uh, over the, the pot for a while until a raccoon got it, but we were putting sunflower seeds in the feeder, and one, one of these seeds obviously dropped into the soil, and it sprouted a sunflower. 
There is no mistaking that sunflower for a penta. You wouldn't look at it and say, wow, that's just a penta that's pushing out some yellow blooms. No, it's a completely different seed. It's a completely different flower. The transformation of desire means that upon trusting Christ, you're a completely different seed. You have a brand new life. You're different. You have different desires. Your life looks different. Your desires look different. You're fundamentally different. Not just a re remaked version of your former self. You're completely different. And that's what Peter's addressing here to these believers, a number of them brand new believers in Christ, who are now facing insults, mockery, some of them losing their jobs because of their newfound loyalty to Christ. And Peter's saying, listen, you are fundamentally different. Sunflower growing in a pentapot, okay? It, they look different. And what Peter's saying is, you don't do what they do anymore. Right? You're different, your desires are different, that's producing different behaviors. The evidence of transformed desires is a willingness to follow Christ and not to follow self. The evidence of transformed desires are a willingness to suffer for Christ rather than to seek comfort for self. Because if you're living for human passions and human desires, there is no way you're gonna choose to suffer for Christ. Anything that takes away comfort, you're gonna push away. The path of least resistance, right? When you're living for self, that is a life defined by the path of least resistance. But when Christ changes you and he gives you these brand new desires, another way to say it is he changes your wanter. He fixes your wanter. He gives you a brand new wanter. Then you're willing to forego comfort. You're willing to suffer for Christ and choose suffering rather than sin. And as these first century believers are doing this, Peter says, listen, these human judgments that are coming down upon you, the mockery, the insult, losing your job, whatever it may be, God is gonna judge the living and the dead. You'll be vindicated. You'll be vindicated. The day is coming. And for those that have died that you're worried about, guess what? Those that died, they heard the gospel too. That's what explains this very strange verse six. Right, those that died, they heard the gospel, they responded to it, they believed, they'll be vindicated too. Because God's coming back to judge the living and the dead. And in Christ, you're saved. You'll be vindicated. So what kind of life does the gospel produce? Well, united by faith to Christ, you get a new wanter. Your desires change. And those new desires, those new desires produce new behaviors. Those new desires produce new behaviors. Look at verse seven, just to set this up. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Right, the end of all things is near. Peter's not saying, hey, he's not pointing to a date. 
Okay, Jesus is gonna return on this date, so get yourself an order. No, the end of all things is near. The end times is the season or the period between Jesus' first and second coming. Peter's hearers were at the end time, we're in the end times, we're in the end times today. Just means that Jesus could return at any moment. Peter says, be self-controlled, be sober-minded, be controlled by Jesus' return. And therefore, be controlled by the desires of God, the desires of Christ, which when Jesus returns, will cover the world. God's will will be done over the entire world. So Peter says, now, arm yourself with this type of thinking, with Christ's thinking. Arm yourself with God's desires. Because the days is coming when God's desires will flood the earth. And so start living now in light of those desires. Right? Now, what, what, what behaviors do these new desires wrought in you by the Holy Spirit, by God, produce? What's the expression of these new desires? Well, there's three one another commands here, starting in verse eight. Love one another. Show hospitality, hospitality to one another and serve one another. Those are the three Peter highlights. Right, verse eight, love one another. Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Peter's actually quoting here from Proverbs, Proverbs 10, 12. It says, hatred stirs up strife but love covers all offenses. Now, put these together. What, what does Peter mean by love one another and love covers a multitude of sins? He's not making a theological statement on how sins are forgiven. Christ takes care of that. Nor is he saying we shouldn't confront. When someone sins, just don't confront church, don't worry about it. No, he's not saying that either. What he is saying is that love seeks to promote unity rather than division. Love seeks to further relationships rather than to destroy relationships. And the environment in this first century was a high-stress environment. These were new believers who were being insulted, who were being mocked, who were losing their jobs, who were, it, there was persecution, there was suffering. Peter said, in this high-stress environment, love one another, don't bicker. Don't, think, don't take things too seriously. Don't get too sensitive. Don't get defensive. Right, you know how that works in a high-stress environment. I mean, we're in it right now. We've been in it for five months. This pandemic with the civil unrest. It's a high-stress environment, and you know exactly what happens when you're stressed. You're way too sensitive. You get way too defensive. You're very quick when somebody says something to bite their head off. You get irritable. Love covers over a multitude of sins. It says don't overreact to something minor when you're stressed. Forbearance, grace, love, patience. This is a time, this is a season we're in where the gospel calls us to immense amounts of grace and love and forbearance because everybody's stressed. Everybody's irritable. 
it's the call to love one another. And that will cover over a multitude of sins and that will keep division from setting in and backbiting and relationships being stressed and destroyed. Love one another. Second expression of these new desires is to show hospitality to one another. To show hospitality. Now the word here, hospitality, means stranger love. It literally means love of the stranger. In the first century, churches met in homes. They didn't have church buildings like this. In fact, uh, some of our larger community groups would have been the size of churches meeting in a home reading Peter's letter in the first century, just to give some perspective. So people opened up their homes. Hospitality or showing hospitality is opening up your home, your life, to people who are different from you. That's the stranger love. It's the definition of the church. The church is a gathering of people who are very diverse in a multitude of ways who hold one thing in common, and that's Jesus Christ. So the church is made up of people with different education backgrounds, people of different races, people of different cultures, people of different family origins, people of different upbringings, people of different socioeconomic backgrounds, and they come together different, hanging on to one thing in common, that's Jesus Christ. The good sign that the church is being the church is when you have a group of people together that apart from Jesus wouldn't be together. Jesus is the common ground. Now, how do you show hospitality in the midst of a pandemic when you may not be opening up your home to people? Well, that's why the word hospitality is not literally talking about opening up your home. That's one way to show hospitality. But hospitality means making room in your life for others. That's the definition of the word. It's making room in your life for others. Now, everyone, to some degree, in this season is feeling isolated. Some of us may be feeling more isolated than others, some feeling more lonely than others, but this pandemic has created loneliness or fostered loneliness, has fostered isolation. Do you know that it's been since the middle of March since our community groups have met in person? Middle of March. From the middle of March to the middle of May, they did it via Zoom, which was better than nothing. Then we took our normal summer break, June, July, and the beginning of August. Normally, you say, well, we always take a summer break from community groups. June and July, we always take off, give our leaders a break. Yes, but we're still seeing each other week by week in worship. We're talking after the service for 10 minutes. We're going to lunch together. Even that's not happening. So we have a family that's feeling deeply isolated and deeply disconnected. And I just want to acknowledge that. Sometimes acknowledging something is just so helpful that everyone's feeling disconnected. 
Now, some of you may feel disconnected, but even a step further, some of you may feel abandoned. Maybe nobody's reached out to you. Maybe nobody's touched base with you, and you're struggling deeply. Let me try to combine these first two one another commands. So love one another, love covers over a multitude of sins, and show hospitality. Everyone is feeling this. Your pastors, your staff, your elders, your deacons, your community group leaders, community group members, we're all feeling disconnected. And this is the time where we're called to love one another. Love covers over a multitude of sins. I would say this, one another commands mean it doesn't just go one way. And I would say this, if if you're struggling, if you're feeling abandoned, if you're feeling disconnected, don't wait for somebody to call you. Just pick up the phone, call someone. Call your community group leader, call an elder, pastor, call someone in your community group, say, I'm struggling, I just need to talk. And when you reach out to someone, assume that they're feeling the same thing that you are. This is an opportunity in this pandemic for the body of Christ at East to be the body, which means that there is massive amounts of one anothering going back and forth in loving, covering over a multitude of sins, not getting easily hurt, and showing hospitality. That being said, our groups are gonna start back up in the end of August because we are in desperate need of community. And we'll fill you in on the details of how we're gonna do that moving forward in the fall in light of the pandemic. So love one another, show hospitality. And then the final expression Peter lists of these new desires is to serve one another. Serve one another. Verse 10, each has received a gift. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. God has given you a gift that is not for self-fulfillment. God has given you a gift that is intended, designed for building others up. And Peter here, you know, Paul defines the gifts in detail, spiritual gifts. Peter here just says, hey, there's a lot of gifts. There's two categories, broad categories, speaking and serving. Some of you have been given gifts that are about what you say and how you say it to people. And some of you have been given gifts that are about what you do for people. Speaking and serving, one's not better than the other. But those are the gifts that God has given. Now, now this serving one another with the gifts you've been given, this has broad implications, but let me speak to a very specific application here, and we'll stay on the theme of community groups. Community groups at Christ Church East are the vehicle through which these one another commands in the New Testament are expressed. Smaller groups of eight to 12 adults, maybe a little bit more, through which these one another commands are expressed. Now, when you decide on going to a community group or you decide where am I gonna go to a group, how am I gonna join, whose group am I gonna join, right? The the number one question that typically rises up is, and, and after you've gone, maybe once, is what am I gonna get out of this group? 
right? What am I going to get out of it? Is it worth my time? Well, in light of what is being taught here, there should be a different question that you ask when it comes to community group. The question you should be asking is, what am I going to give to this group? How is God going to use the gift he has given me to bless the people in this group, to build them up, to serve them? That's a very different approach to group. It's not, what am I going to get out of this and is it worth my time? What am I going to give to this group? Now, can you imagine if everyone showed up at a community group with that attitude? That'd be a dynamic group. Now, you have all these gifts coming to say, how am I going to serve the other in this group? How am I going to build these people up? Deep in the Luray Caverns of Virginia, there is a very unique organ console. So in these caverns, there's, you know, over the years, as the water drips, it forms stalactites, which are basically these icicles that hang from the ceiling of the cavern. And this person who built this very unique organ understood that when you strike one of these stalactites, that each stalactite makes a different tone, makes a different sound. And so he scoured the cavern and found all these different stalactites that would strike the different tones needed to have an organ. And in some cases, he would chip away at some of the stalactite, make it a little bit shorter, take some length off of it, until he finally had the stalactites in place. And then there were these motorized mallets that were attached to the organ that would hit the stalactite. And so if you go, you hear this beautiful music being played from rocks in a cavern. What a beautiful picture of the church. What a beautiful picture of what the gospel produces in a life. That Jesus Christ died for you, he rose for you, and gave you a note to play in the song of God's redemption in the world. God is the organ builder. He's the organ player. And he has given you a gift. He says, I don't want you trying to play all these tones and these notes. Just, just play your note. Just play your note that I've given you. And I will make all these notes and all these gifts and all these people come together and make something beautiful that brings hope and redemption and salvation to our world. Let's pray. Father, what a beautiful, beautiful picture of your grace and how it flows into your world through your people. That Father, you have given each of us a unique gift and it's not for self-fulfillment. 
It's for building others up. It's a gift that is lined up with your desires, not our selfish desires. Oh, Father, would you help us as the struggle with sin is still there and it'll be there till you return, Jesus. Would you help us to live according to our new wanters that you've given us by your spirit through the death and resurrection of Christ? And would you make us a church? Would you make us a body that loves one another? that shows hospitality to one another, that makes room in our lives for others? And would you make us a body that, of people that serves? Father, we are in the midst of such a stressful time right now in this pandemic. People are, are not doing well. And I pray for those maybe in this room, those watching online that are struggling deeply and maybe even starting to feel some bitterness that no one's reached out or no one's cared for them and they feel abandoned and disconnected. Would you give them the strength to pick up the phone, to call someone? I pray this week that there would be all kinds of calls and texts and that the body of East would be just reaching out that no one would feel alone and that your grace, your very grace would be poured out this week through the gifts of your people so that you, Father, and you alone would be glorified and honored and your people would be strengthened. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.